0: Welcome to Game On, the weekly football podcast Bringing together seasoned professionals, the male star football writers And a celebrity fan or two I'm your host Mark Pugach Don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple and Google And if you haven't already, why not sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing At mailplus.co.uk Where you can also watch Game On on video Hello, I'm Mark Pugac, welcome to Game On. The game's come thick and fast at Christmas, it's a real treat for the fans, but the Premier League have yet again voted against five subs. So undoubtedly, there'll be some disgruntled managers out there. Joining us today to talk about all of this, the former Liverpool player, Ray Houghton, the Southampton legend, Matt Letizier, and Ian Herbert, the Daily Mail's deputy chief sports writer. Hello, thank you for your time. Let's start with this whole row because it is a row about substitutions and the fact that the Premier League have again voted down the introduction of five subs and the Premier League are on their own now when it comes to the major European leagues. So the vote finished 10-10. You need 14 to change anything. So the clubs that voted against going to five subs, Aston Villa, Burnley, Crystal Palace, Fulham, Leicester, Leeds, Newcastle, Sheffield United, West Ham and Wolves. Uh, Ray, with your Liverpool hat on, Matt, with your Southampton hat on, your clubs wanted five subs. I think we know why. Ray, is it simply the big clubs want five and the smaller clubs are terrified that allowing the big clubs to have five will give those big clubs too much of an advantage?
1: Well, that's what I've read, certainly, Mark. You know, if you, you look at the, the the clubs, if you like, that have bought in the league, Uh, You look at the depth of the squad and the quality, it might not be there in comparison to the top teams. But what I would say for a club like Liverpool, my old club, so far they've been involved since September. Two League Cup, six Champions League, 13 league games and two international breaks. So when you factor that all in, you can understand the reasons why Jurgen Klopp is trying to protect his players as best as he can.
0: But, Ray, he then doesn't make a single change against Tottenham. So on the one hand, he says, give us five subs because the, because the exertions could be too much for my players. And on the other hand, against the what were then the league leaders, he doesn't make a single change. And yeah, that's it, hard to fathom.
1: Well, well he's playing in a game he wants to win. He's trying to retain the Premier League. You're not going to make changes for the sake of it. But what you want is the knowledge that if you have to, that you've got that uh, opportunity to do, to do so. He's not going to make five changes every game. You know, that, that just wouldn't be... would be right. We've seen it in international football, when you see friendlies and managers make changes at half time and they decimate the team from the first half to the second half, there's no flow to the game. But all they want, I think, the top side, is because they're playing in Europe the, and the number of games that they're playing is they've got the opportunity to change the team around and look after the players. And if it's, you know, injuries through, you know, stress and too much games and I think one of the complaints that managers have had is they're playing in the Champions League or the Europa League and they're playing quite quickly in the league the next game after that and that is something that you have to factor in it's something that all the leagues should be looking at to look after the welfare of the players as best as they can
0: absolutely well well Matt we're talking about one of the leading clubs so we're talking about Southampton (laughs) (laughs) so where do you stand on this what's your view on it
2: you know, I, I actually think it's a it's an incredibly nuanced debate, uh, Mark. I don't think it's it's that simple that you can just say it's because the the squads are stronger in the bigger teams and and they wanted to help them out. Uh, I think it, it's it's far more nuanced than that. I think you have to also look at the 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 difference in the in the quality of the players in squads. So if you have a, a squad at Manchester City uh, where the first eleven is completely amazing and world-class, uh, and then you have the, the players underneath that who are still very good players, perhaps not quite so world-class. What you have to look at is, is that difference any different to the difference in the quality of player in a squad of a team that's a little bit lower down the league? Um, and, I, and I think that's that's the key point of it. It's not just that the big clubs have stronger squads, it's it's the difference between the quality of the first 11 mm. and the second 11. Uh, and, I, and I think that's the debate that needs to be had. And that's what you have to look at when making that decision on whether you think having five substitutions is fair.
0: Yeah. I mean, Ian, it's all about self preservation, isn't it? I and mean, you look at that list Sheffield United, who are mm. down the bottom there, uh, Burnley, who are down the bottom there, Fulham, who are down the bottom there. It's about self preservation, isn't it? It's about not allowing the bigger clubs. And if you're down the bottom, the bigger clubs are the ones three or four places above you—not yeah. necessarily Liverpool and Southampton and, and Tottenham. It's not allowing them any sort of advantage, which may come back to bite you.
3: Yeah, that's right. I mean, they do have a big advantage, which is the kind of commercial advantage. I mean, they are you know, those those top six clubs, vast, you know, plus Arsenal are, uh, are, are, you know, are vastly wealthier. They've got vastly bigger squads. You get a club like Burnley, you can you can actually barely produce the two. The two teams that Matt's talking about. So, I mean, I, I just think that, of course, you know, Ray's right. Player welfare's got to be, um, you know, paramount. But, you know, I think that anything which preserves um, some degree of equilibrium between the, the, you know, the big and the small is, it, you know, is good. And that's why I think stick with three. I mean, I, you know, I, 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 I think, it, I think that is right. And and if if Liverpool have got that 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 wealth and that resource, well, they'll just have to find the players from that second 11 that Matt's talking about to be able to come to the fore. And to be fair, you know, they are bringing through young players as, as, as Wednesday night proved.
0: Yeah they certainly are. Yeah, what about the knock-on for the Euros? Gareth Southgate and obviously Steve Clark, Ryan Giggs, you're thinking well the British players got well, three countries in the yeah. Euros, are playing that much more and the European leagues do have five subs and they don't have a league cup and arguably their game is not as intensely consistently physical. There could be a knock-on for our
3: countries. Yeah definitely, up. definitely. And I think the fact that uh, the fact that the Premier League is the only European league, you know, left with with three rather than five could be uh, could be a problem. And you know, he, now, every time we report on majoring England tournaments, we always seem to be writing about the injuries that crop up in April or May, you know, down the years, Beckham, Rooney, Gareth Barry. That was a massive story one year. Um, it, it comes down to that. The pre-tournament uh, narrative is all about that. So I think it will be a major one come, uh, come the spring.
0: Uh, You throw in tiredness, Matt, to that as well, would not you? Apart from injuries, tiredness. How many times have we written in the media, the England players look tired? We don't want to say the Scotland players look tired. The Wales players look tired next summer.
2: Yeah, but I think the clubs have a responsibility as well to their players um, because we've spoken a lot down the years of of squad rotation. And if the the managers are, are so concerned about it all, they should have faith in their squad and they should switch the team around a little bit more rather than having five substitutions and taking a player off for 15 minutes when, let's be honest, 15 minutes is neither here nor there at the end of a game. Um, I, I actually think that it's it's probably um, a, a case of the managers and the clubs having to look after their players better and use their squad better because at the end of the day, the, the way I look at it is that is that you have a certain amount of energy for the week, for the season, whatever it is. So, as a manager, you're looking to get the best amount of it out of your players on the days when you're playing games. So, if you're playing a lot of games, the simple solution to me is—and people will laugh at this because they'll probably just go, "That's just that's what you wanted." <laughs> the simple solution is you don't train very much in between the games, and you conserve your energy for the games. Because if you're playing that many games, you don't actually have to do too much in between. And so all the, all the training that you do in between the games is, is low impact and a lot of tactical stuff uh, and not so much physical stuff. And you look after your players properly. The, the science, the sports science um, part of football uh, is very much embedded in the game now. And they have to be used to, to give advice to the manager to make sure that those players in between their games aren't being overworked. Yeah,
0: Well, as it will come later to this time of year where it's just playing and not training at all. Ray, let's look at the game at Anfield the other night and a, a massive moment it felt like in right at the end of the game when Firmino headed Liverpool the winner. Did that feel like quite a, I don't want to say a turning point of the season, but a significant moment nevertheless?
1: Yeah, whenever you're playing against one of the teams that are up and around you, you know, and you and you get uh, the victory, you get the three points, you're always very happy. It was the, the way, the manner that they got it. If you looked at in the game overall, possession wise, Liverpool dominated the game. Number of shots on goal, Liverpool dominated that. But the clear cut chances, you would have to say, failed Spurs way. The fact that they didn't take them ended up impacting them at the end of the match, where I thought they defended very well for 80 odd minutes, but then they just lost it in the, the, the last few moments of the game, where, you know, lost their discipline, lost their focus, allowed Firmino to get in. And it was a cracking header to win the game. But that's typical of Liverpool over the last couple of seasons. You know, the reason why they won the league last year was a lot of matches where they scored late on to win games. And that's the side of champions. That's what champions do. You know, they, they keep going for the pro 90-plus minutes and they have great belief in their ability that they're going to win the game. Now, Tottenham will come away from that game thinking, you know what, we competed well, you know, we defended well, but, you know, we've got to add a little bit more to a game where we're going forward, you know, the... The counter-attack was there as far as Son and as far as Harry Kane was concerned, but not a great deal else. You know, the midfield, I think, are you know, the type of players that sit and protect rather than they're going to get forward and win your matches. You know, if you ask Tottenham fans at the moment, they would probably say defensively they're a lot more sound than they've been in previous years, but they're a lot less uh, watchable, if you like. You know, people don't tend to enjoy what they're seeing as an attacking outfit. Uh, And hopefully, with Josie Mourinho, over the coming months, that'll improve.
0: Uh, Matt, I'll come to you in a second, but Ian, how about this for a theory? Because it's really fascinating. We know what Liverpool are, and Curtis Jones and Reese Williams played well. So, in a way, Liverpool looks after itself. A theory that the reason that Tottenham are in this title race is because of Mourinho and his know-how and his track record and the impact he's had on these players. But maybe the reason they won't win the title is because of Mourinho. Because not so much the Liverpool game, but certainly the Crystal Palace game, can you play constantly on the break, more often than not, and win enough matches to win a title?
3: Well, you know, I think it, it's it's going to it's the most interesting Premier League season, you know, perhaps for twenty years because of, because of the fact that it's unpredictable, because of you know, and that's because of the kind of uh, the intensity of fixtures and stuff. And I just think it could be that the the Spurs are an ideal team for this kind of season. You know that they will nick wins here and there, and they should have. They could have nicked that win at Anfield. I mean, there were two obviously major chances in that, in that second half. Um, so I think it, I just think it could be the opposite to that, Mark. I think it could, could just be that in a, a season of narrow margins, a season in which a lot of teams don't defend that well. I mean, Liverpool do look like they are defensively vulnerable if you, if you crack them in the right way with that high line. And um, I was pretty impressed by Spurs in that sense, um, albeit that it's not, it's not that beautiful. Uh, to watch. I also thought in in this week what I loved about this week. I'm I'm not a massive fan of Mourinho and his politics and his his games and stuff, but you know the press conference with the uh, you know we're, we're we're ponies, not thoroughbreds or whatever it was he said. And I just sort of felt there was a bit of the joy back in Mourinho that that had gone had gone at United. It was grim when he was there, so I, I think it could just be the opposite that they could nick games here and there with a good defence and 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 just be in there.
2: Matt, can they win it this way? I I think the answer to that question, Mark, is Leicester City.
0: As in Leicester winning it in 2016?
2: As in Leicester City won the Premier League title playing counter-attacking football. Yeah. 100%. And their their possession stats for that season were incredibly low for a a team that won the title. Uh, and, And I think they proved that it can be done. And perhaps Mourinho's looked at that and gone, well, hang on a minute, they did it. We've got the players mm. to be able to do that. Why? Why don't we give it a shot?
0: I just—I'm really curious. To, as I say, not so much Anfield, Matt, but Crystal Palace. I'm watching it going right. You're one up here, Tottenham. If you want to win the league, and you and you'd won a very good late game at Burnley and at West Brom. I thought right, if you get another one here on the road, Crystal Palace never easy. Blah blah blah. That's impressive, and I just thought, don't sit back so much. You're inviting trouble there. It's it's the Crystal Palace game, as I say, not the Anfield yeah. game, which they could have yeah. won. Bergwijn, et cetera, etc., etc. And I'm thinking. Do you, do you have to let them off the leash just a little bit more?
2: Uh, I think there would come there would come a time when that is the case. I think he perhaps thought that the one goal against the Palace team, who don't normally score too many yeah. goals, um, you know, I know they have got a few against West Brom when they were down to ten men, but generally, certainly at, at home, um, Crystal Palace don't score a lot, and he and he might have thought that's it, that's good enough, mm. and, my, and I trust my defence.
0: Yeah. Well, it's what did Arsene to say, Ray, when you're leading but only by a goal, it's like sitting on an electric bench. And I think that summed it up, didn't it, there? But what about Liverpool then, Ray? We finished off this one here. So many injuries, but Curtis Jones is playing excellently, isn't he? Reese Williams played really well. So despite all the injuries, how confident are you feeling about Liverpool?
1: Oh, very confident at the moment. Um, yeah, they will get the big names back. They'll, they'll come back in the second half of the season. I think the depth of the squad is there. If I was a youngster at Liverpool currently in the youth team, I'd be ecstatic because you've got a manager who believes in the young players and he's not afraid to put them in. He he, he believes that if you're good enough, it doesn't matter how old you are, go out there and play in the manner that uh, you're accustomed to. They're very disciplined. They know the job that's required. The energy level of the Liverpool players have been first rate. The home form is absolutely outstanding. Was it no defeats in the league in the last three seasons? Tells you it's a fortress you know, the, the clubs are going to Anfield and virtually they're beaten before they, they, they've kicked the ball. Uh, is there a waveform that he has to get right? You know, I was at Brighton recently where they, where they struggled, really. They gave up opportunities. You know, Ian was talking about the back line and, you know, how high up they're played. You know, if you're playing against Liverpool, you, you'd be advocating to play balls over the top and get runners in behind them and you'll get opportunities that way. But in saying that, they've only lost one league game this season. The Aston Villa. It was a convincing defeat as well at 7-2. But overall, with everything that's gone on at the club, the injuries, the amount of games that they've played, they're in a very strong position. And what I would just say is a little bit different to what Matt said about what happened with Leicester. I thought a lot of clubs took their eye off it and, and Leicester got a good head of steam up and others couldn't catch them. I don't think you'll see it with Liverpool this season. Man City aren't playing as well as they, they can. They've had their injury problems. I think they'll come much stronger in the second half of the season. But I don't think uh, with Tottenham, they're probably one or two injuries away from, you know, Harry Kane being out, Son being out, where you're looking around where the goal is going to come from. It's one thing being dogmatic and, and, and keeping a good defensive shape, but you've also got to score goals as well to win games. And I think that's where they might struggle with the depth of the squad as well. And maybe the players that have got to come in aren't quite of the standard that can win you the games require.
0: Yeah, but I think as, I think we'd all agree, as Ian says, it's a fascinating title race, yeah. and, and, and great for that. Ian, let's go to the other end of the table. How unlucky, in your view, is Slaven Bilic? Great points at Man City, and then gets a boot hours later. Yeah,
3: I mean, I, I I think he is massively unlucky, and there's a big debate about whether Sam, you know, should be coming back in at West Brom. I think the actual real debate is about Bilic, and um, yeah, they were sort of second bottom of the league, but yet yeah, you're right, I thought that was a great result. But the broader picture with... Uh, with Village, with I think, is, 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 you know, the lack of resources that he was given and the uncertainty when they got promoted. His budget was about £25 million, which, you know, is, you know, a fraction of what, say, Sheffield United have had, or, you know, I mean, they bought in Ryan Brewster for about that much money. It's a fraction of what Villa have had um, after keeping Dean Smith, after, after they'd stayed up. Village um, wanted Ollie Watkins, who went to Villa and had an immediate impact. Um, he wanted Eberechi... Um, as he went to Palace, and you know, I just think—I uh, mean, I interviewed Billich about a year ago, just before the the lockdown—and it, it, there was a real sense of joy around West Brom. And I think he brought something a bit intangible, something you know, laughter. It was—it was—it was a place that had suddenly found its its identity again. So very unlucky, Mark. I think, um, and we'll see what happens.
0: And Matt, what did what did you think when you heard Sam Allardyce coming
2: in? Um, I I don't think it was a, a massive surprise. Um, you know, given Sam's track record in that department. Uh he's obviously the you know one of the names that immediately gets mentioned when anyone in relegation trouble um has a has a vacancy. Uh I was a I was a little bit surprised, I must admit, I thought they would have given Slavin a, a, a little bit more time. Um, you know, I thought it was a little bit unfortunate against Palace. Uh you know, they just got back into the game at one all, looked like they had the momentum, and then they had the lad sent off. Um, and it just completely turned the game uh, so yeah you, you always feel for a manager um, you know who does so well to get them promoted and it's a completely different league you know he's, he's, he's up against it with the squad that he's got and I just felt like the, the the hierarchy at West Brom could have given him a little bit more time
0: Yeah, Ray sometimes you look at teams doing really well at the top of the championship and you think well if you get promoted we'll be talking about your job probably in December next year <laughs>
1: Yeah, absolutely. We've seen it so many times, Mark. I mean, with clubs promoted, manager takes them up, everyone's feeling good about the season ahead in the Premier League. Uh, and then you get off to a poor start to defeat the Everton and a 3 old draw with Chelsea. So that would be a concern. He, was he, is he the man to try and keep them up? We now believe that Sam Allardyce is that uh, individual. You look at Sam's record as a manager, never been relegated. You know, he's, he's currently, I think, been out of work. That's the longest time, two years. Prior to that, he was in jobs for a year and done well with the club where he was. But obviously the clubs didn't want to keep him on for any longer than that. I think this is his toughest test, I really do. Wherever he's been before, he might have had a goal scorer uh, that kept him up. He'll organise them defensively. But I think with West Brom at the moment and the fact that they're just struggling for confidence and belief, it might be a lot tougher for him this time around to keep them up.
3: Yeah, I think think the other factor with some some of these uh, sort of, managers I think is a question you, you just look at the relationship between them and the owners and um, I mean there was a good piece in the mail by Tom Colomossi who's the, you know, the Midlands football correspondent this week you know he was sort of talking about the fact that Billich had actually never met the West Bromwich owners which you know um, that, that tells you something really about you know I don't know a- absentee owners almost I mean how much do they really understand the club and you know how much Feel for it, do they, do they really have? I think if, if, if a manager has never met the owners, you're going to be worrying, Mark.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, no. I, I remember a long time ago, Steve McLaren saying to me, you know, I was going, where are you going to go next, Steve? And he goes, it, it, it's, he says, you'll all think I want to go to the Premier League. It's getting the relationship right with the owner that is the most important yeah. thing, whatever league that is in. Um, Ian, we think the relationship between Frank Lampard's pretty good, probably in Roman Abramovich from when he was a player. Frank Lampard, the manager, there have not been anybody sitting above twelfth place all season, and they've lost the last two with arguably the deepest squad in the Premier yeah. League. Now they play West Ham, his old club. That's going to be a big game.
3: Yeah, no, I mean I, I, absolutely. I, I was at the I was at the Wolves, the Wolves Chelsea game on Tuesday, and um, you know they were they were poor, really. I mean, uh, uh, they'd seemed. Th- they didn't actually seem fit. They didn't look they looked tired. Um Havertz and Werner, well Werner was kind of out on the wing and pretty isolated. Havertz worked quite hard but didn't really have much impact. Um and Wolves just looked a lot a lot more athletic and a lot better. So um I mean Frank was reluctant to uh, uh to take tiredness as an excuse, but um it's a couple of bad results there, really at Everton and Wolves, and um, yeah, I mean, they, they've they've spent more than anyone else, so that was it was it was it was poor,
0: especially given that squad, Matt. You look at you can write down all the squads of the, the leading clubs. Chelsea have arguably got more depth than anybody, properly two players for every position there.
2: Yeah, I think you're you're probably right. Um, so it's a super squad he's got there, and, and the one thing that probably surprised me a little bit is is given that the close proximity of the, the two games that they just played, that the game against Wolves, I think he only made one change. You know, when you've got a, a squad that strong, you know, why wouldn't you utilise that with a midweek fixture like this? Um, and that was the, that was the big thing for me. And I was a little surprised that he didn't just switch it around a little bit more.
0: Yeah. Cause West Ham, you, David Moyes has proved, I think Matt, hasn't he, that people who underestimated or written him off have done so far too prematurely.
2: <laughs> yeah, very much so. Uh, I mean, I, I remember looking at West Ham's fixtures after they lost to Newcastle, I think it was on the, on the opening day of the season. You looked at their next six or seven fixtures and you thought, blimey, they could be eight games in with like no points if they're not careful. And then they, they put together uh, some super results and put themselves in a great position and they've taken advantage of that. And you're right, David Moyes has to take huge credit for, for what he's done there at West Ham this season so far.
0: Ray, let's pay tribute to Gerard Houllier. Some really great tributes this week from, from Phil Thompson. Obviously, who was his assistant there and Jamie Carragher and, and Michael Owen and Stephen Gerard. What would you like to say and add about Gerard Houllier's impact at Anfield?
1: Well, I mean, he was a fantastic football man. You know, if you ever sat in his company and top football, you know, you, you, you really got the feeling that he knew so much about it. He, he was a passionate man. He loved the game. He loved speaking about it. You know, he had a fantastic career as a manager, not just domestically, but internationally as well. He helped the French national team in so many different ways. I mean, I had a job with the FA Association of Ireland where I was bringing in the new manager. I actually spoke to, spoke to Gerard for the job. Um, and we didn't, we didn't put out there who we were speaking to because obviously you, know, you can only offer one person the job. I've got to be honest, with we would have gave him the job if he really come back 100%. But just being in his company, talking to him, you know, telling him about the job prospects and what his feelings were about it and what he knew about the Irish team, it was brilliant. Because he was sitting there, as I say, we're a, a real football man. He's a huge loss. There's no doubt about it. I just ask the Liverpool public, you know, what he did for them and changing their fortunes around. And, Tournamenty winners again, you know, that treble that he won back. Well, in that's the point, Ray, isn't it? Because
0: yeah. after the glory years that you played in, there was inevitably in, yeah. you know a period in the nineties, which happens to every club, everything's cyclical up to a point where things dropped off a little bit. He definitely, where Liverpool are today, you could argue Gerard Houdet started that process a couple of decades ago.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with you. You know, he, he brought back the, the feel good factor of being a Liverpool player and a particularly a Liverpool supporter. You know, they were so used to winning things for a number of years, Liverpool, and then you're not doing it, and then you start to worry. Then you brought in a manager who knows the Liverpool way. He brought a style of football that was appealing to it, to all the Liverpool fans and the Liverpool players. It was a joy to be part of his setup, and then you get results. You know that that's what it's all about, Mark. It's winning. That winning mentality. He brought back that winning feeling for everyone concerned with the club, and it was a a really good period for the club.
0: Ian, you know Liverpool well. What would you like to add about Gerard? Julio? Yeah,
3: I, I, it just struck me that. Um, one of the things that uh, the qualities he had was, 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 was heart, you know, kindness. Uh, Mm -hmm. There was, there was a, there was a quote that I saw this week. If you don't mind me, the indulgence of me reading it out, it's very brief, which he said, generosity always pays off in the long run. If you're a generous man with a heart, with humanity, it always pays off. And I think, you know, there's a lot of debate about football. There's a lot of rows and, and sackings and critiques and stuff, but, you don't often hear about kindness and and all the stuff that I read and some brilliant stuff by Phil Thompson, uh, you know, incredible words from Phil. Um, And a lot of it came down to that, to humanity and to a generosity. Um, And that, that transcends sport, I think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. As you said, Phil Thompson said in his quote, you know, every time I spoke to him, I told him I loved him when we finished the conversation. And thank you for the privilege of working with him. And Matt, as Ian says, the fact that he got on so well with Sir Alex Ferguson... And Arsene Wenger, obviously his compatriot, but the great right, you know, the three clubs who were neck and neck at the time says it all what those two felt about Gerard Houllier.
2: Oh, no, indeed. Mm. Uh, I think I love that, that quote from Ian. Uh, yeah. I think it's so, so true. Um, it's just it just shows what kind of a, a man he was. And, you know, you've got uh, two incredibly um, huge characters, very different characters, very different egos. Uh, and and the fact that he can get along with both of them perfectly well uh, shows just what a, uh, a character he was, because he was able to be, you know, that kind of person who who doesn't pick and choose who he uh, who he gets along with. He takes people as he finds them, and he finds a way to get along with them. Uh, and I think that's uh, that's massively important. I, I didn't actually um, spend uh, very much time ever in in Gerard's company. I didn't really know him that well. Um, however, uh, when he was assistant manager of France. Um, when Platini was manager, uh, Gerard actually went to the trouble of phoning my father in the Channel Islands uh, a couple of times and uh, uh, and tried to talk my father into talking me into playing for France, yeah. Um, which uh, which I, I thought was uh, <laughs> uh you know, that, that was lovely for me to hear that they were that they thought so highly of me that uh. That they'd want to play for me. Uh, unfortunately, what he didn't realise at that point is that I actually didn't qualify for France. I had no French grandparents.
0: Oh right, I thought some. T- I thought there might be some sort of Channel Islands you could swing both ways sort of deal. No, no, not
2: no, quite. I, I think uh, I'm pretty sure actually, Graham Lassault could yeah. have played France because his his grandfather was actually French, but but mine wasn't. Oh, okay. Um, a
0: great and story, uh, that's a really good story. About I like that. The other thing I really like, Ray, is. I'm listening to Danny Murphy on the radio this week, talking about how Gerard Hood would say, you're a, you're a person first and a footballer second. You know, what I want to concentrate on what you are as a person and make that the best you that you can be. And then you will be a better footballer and the team will be a better team as a result of it.
1: I yeah, he was, always, he was always looking for the positives, wasn't he? You know, he was always looking for the positives in players. He wanted to understand what made them tick, what made them the individual that they, they were. And then that creates a, a, a great environment to be involved in and, and on a daily basis. You've got to remember, you're living in each other's pockets, if you like, every day. You know, you, you probably see more of your teammates than your family at times because you, you're around them much more. So you've got to find common ground and, and things that you, you know, you're interested in. And he certainly done that. And he wanted a group of players that were harmonious, who got on well together, but more importantly, had each other's back. When you were going in to play games, you could trust the player that you were playing alongside because you knew about them. You knew about them as an, an individual. As you say, the most important thing was that person and getting the, the most out of them to, to perform at the highest level. So, I mean, psychology-wise, that was absolutely outstanding from his point of view. But I think the, the football world, Mark, have lost someone very, very special.
0: Absolutely. Um, and we remember Gerard Houllier as the are with a great deal of affection and admiration. Uh, let's uh, let's have with a bit of fun, Matt and Ray, and then Ian and I can listen in and go. What oh, a tough job this! And that's footballers at Christmas. So let me set the scene. I work on the international channel for the Premier League. Dion Dublin and Don Hutchison. Last week on Monday, I said, "What's it like?" This time, I went. It's brilliant. You don't train because you're playing so often. You're told to eat as much as you can because you're going to burn it all off. On your off days, you either have a massage. Or you're on your bike, you know, watching Netflix. I went, well, that's a really tough life, isn't it? Is this, Matt, the best time of year to be a footballer?
2: Uh, I must admit, I, I absolutely loved the Christmas period. I really did. I, you know, for me, I would, have, I would have quite happily played Sunday, Wednesday, uh, oh. Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday for 40 weeks of the year, quite happily, and just trained as little as possible in between. <laughs> and, and, and so when Christmas comes around and you've got these games couple of days after each other it's just like oh this is brilliant i just get to play games in front of a full stadium i don't even have to train like you say you you can, you can eat what you want you ain't gonna put on weight it's, no. it's absolutely little odd. massage and, on the day in and, between yeah absolutely yeah. and the other the other big bonus um was that we had to train on christmas day morning so so you would actually um, and people will probably go that's a bit off. why would you think that's a bonus well you know you you get up you see the kids open the presents and that's great but then you get to go off for, for three hours while the entire Christmas dinner is prepped and you don't have to do a single thing. And you, you walk back in the house and it's all there on the table for you.
0: <laughs> and no one goes, Where have you been? You haven't helped at all. Well, I'm really sorry. I've been at work. Yeah. You've been at work. Do you know know what do I mean? you want me to do? What do you want me to do? <laughs> Ray, great for you this time of year as a player. Oh, I
1: love that. I mean, I, I can't understand when you hear clubs and managers saying, You know, let's have a Christmas break. You know, for me, it was the perfect time to play football. I agree with a lot of what Matt said there about you know training on on Christmas morning, then you are coming back, and then you were off to the, the hotel in preparation for the game the next day. The only downside, and honestly, well, there was only one downside, and that was the travelling. I mean, if you had a long coach journey and it was like five six hours because the roads were bad, that was the only downside of it. But the lack of training, playing game, if you're a footballer. You you want to train, obviously, because you want to keep fit. But the most important thing is playing games. You know, that's where you come to the fore. That's where you you have your most enjoyment. You know, as a youngster, that's what you dream about, is playing in someone's first team. And then, you know, people are saying, I don't want to play over Christmas. I'd rather have some time off. I don't understand it, personally. For me, it was the best time of the year to play.
0: Ray, did you ever play with anybody who you felt... On boxing day, you thought, hmm, you slightly overtrained yesterday in an unprofessional manner. Well, I,
1: I would have say it might have been Christmas night where they might have had one or two drinks, but they yes. should have had, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, I mean, that, <laughs> back in the day, that was quite common, I, I think. But, uh, and particularly over, I would say, New Year's Eve. Well, I mean, many a hotel I've been in, uh, and there would have been a, a party downstairs with obviously a lot of uh, family and friends who would be there celebrating New Year's Eve. Uh, and I've got to be honest with you, there's been once or twice, uh, way back in the day, maybe more so in my Fulham days, maybe more so in my Liverpool days, where I would have been in that party for a couple of beers and then being encouraged by the manager, by the way, uh, to have a couple <clears throat> on that uh, on New Year's Eve before the game the next day. It really didn't affect me, to be honest.
2: I, I must admit, I, I only once did I um, overindulge slightly on christmas day in the alcohol department yeah um and I, I was a very young i was only 21 i think i was and uh, and my next door neighbors invited me around for, for christmas lunch and uh and i got kind of talked into having a few drinks and it, it turned into quite a few <laughs> However, the next day we were playing at home against Man City and we beat them two-one, and I scored the winning goal. And looking back, I think oh, maybe I should have done that. Ian, <laughs> <year." laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, this is great, is not it? Because the Jets say the Europeans look at us and go, "Why do you want to do that?" And we go, "Obviously, the players love it. You and I in the media, we love yeah. it. When we were kids and we were fans, we loved it. And um, you know, and obviously, this year of all years, we need something to take our minds off it. It's fantastic." I, yeah. I, I'd hate to not be playing at
3: this time. It's great time. for us as well, isn't it, really? Because, yeah. you know, you, you, you've you got these two weeks, really, and as a, as a writer, you sort of really, you know, you've got like a load of... I mean, it's a really intense uh, period, isn't it, this year? You've got a load of Premier League games to either be covering or watch, and then, you know, you're straight in for third round of the FA Cup, yeah. which is the, the most sublime... As a, as a writer about sport and football, it's the best weekend of all to write, yeah. I think, in many ways to write about. So... Uh, it's brilliant. We don't really have to think about work and stories. We just go and enjoy the football for a couple of weeks.
0: And I think, actually, I going back to is. what we've said, Ray, about Gerard Houllier and Arsene Wenger, and I'm sure Jürgen Klopp and Mourinho, in other words, all the, the, the Europeans who now manage here, and the South Americans, they love it, actually. I think very quickly they love it and they get it, don't they? This is, yes. this is the way that we are in this country, and obviously in Scotland as well. This is the way that we are. This is what we do.
1: Yeah, I think they buy into what the English game, the British game is about, And this time of the year is hugely important to fans. Now, let's hope, you know, it won't be that long before we see fans back in the stadiums. I mean, actually, I would like to go back to the the Billich situation. I think if Slavin had the West Brom supporters there on a regular basis, I don't think he'd be out of a job at the moment, because I thought, I think, I personally think he would get huge support for what he'd done. The achievement of, of getting promoted last season. So that's been a real hindrance to him. And I think it's been a hindrance to a few Clubs uh, along the way, but you know the, the foreign managers, I think, love the Christmas period. They they love seeing the teams out there playing. Yeah, there's a lot of matches, and they understand it. And we have, as Ian said a, a few moments ago, we have got the greatest domestic competition in the world still, and that's the FA Cup.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we're looking forward to that uh, very, very much at the beginning of January. Gents, thank you very much indeed. Stay safe, stay well. No one's playing, so enjoy yourselves. We all need a smile on our face at the end of this year of all years. So thank you very much and happy Christmas. And that's it from Game On. We'll be back next week and every week via Spotify, Apple and Google. Don't forget to sign up to your daily briefing from mailplus.co.uk. That's it from me, Mark Pugac. See you next week for more Game Off.